So um, this morning, um, I, I want to do uh, two things. We'll cover it in three ways, but I want to do two things. One, um, as we come to kind of our final installment and what has turned out to be, maybe we could label it a mini-series on the fall of Satan or the origin of demons, that, that, that sense, dealing with that in, in a sense of a mini-series, which was not going to be covered at all, and then now is our third installment. And, and what I want to do is I want to kind of... Um, summarize the first view. We've looked at uh, view number one, right? We're considering together, for those who are joining with us this morning, and and by way of refreshment to those who have been with us so far, what we're doing is um, summarizing this morning a view that we've looked at regarding the fall of Satan. Uh, Everyone has wondered about that and questioned about that and thought through that, and you've probably had various discussions along the line with it and contemplative meditations on uh, how did evil begin, where did it come from, where did Satan come from, how did he fall, so on and so forth. So we want to tackle that because he just appears in Genesis 3. He's just on the stage. Here he is. Here's this uh, craftier than other beasts who appears and begins speaking to the woman. Um, And so we want to consider how did he get here um, and and from whence did he come. Then uh, I want to summarize view number one. Then I want to um, conclude uh, or, or explain and conclude view number two. And then at the end of that, just make uh, like four final conclusionary statements or final statements that um, I would like to share with you regarding after I consider me, Adam, as I consider view number one and view number two, just kind of where I shake out in the laundry at the end. Just kind of want to share that with you and, ha- and submit that for your sense of edification and thinking it through as well and join me in the thoughts of how to read Genesis 3 well. I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, when, when you're looking at answering this issue of the origins or fall of Satan, there are two primary or uh, important views within the history of the church that need to be considered carefully. So um, you, you could uh, go to various passages and maybe make some inferences from them and say maybe this is describing it, maybe this is not describing a historical figure, maybe this is alluding to the fall of Satan, and maybe that's really what's going on here. And you can kind of work through a few different things. When, when the dust settles, there's two primary, I would think, primary views that ought to be taken with seriousness. And you ought, to, you ought to consider them thoughtfully. And so far, I want to give you the summary of the first of those two views that we've considered the last two weeks. And it is this. And, and so track with me. This is view one. And, and I'm just summarizing it for you. Regarding the fall and origin of Satan. And that is this. View number one, as we look at Genesis 3, is that Satan fell Here, in Genesis 3, when he was sent to minister to Adam and Eve in terms of challenging, teaching, and positively instructing them in the way of obedience. This is view one among two that need to be carefully considered. That Satan was here in Genesis 3 to appear and to approach Adam and Eve during their probationary period in the garden. And he was to minister proactively to them and serve as an agent of testing and challenge. Not to trick them, but to test them in the way of obedience. Again, where would we even kind of get to? And I I can't rehearse it all. 
um, because it would just simply take too long. But just a, when you hear that and you think, what? how is that working? Remember, where, where did we first make our move to be able to say there may be some substance or, or substance to this thought? And it is the idea that angels, as we were to look at the biblical data from Genesis to Revelation, and we're tracking angel activity. What do we know about the angels? Um, often it seems very little. Maybe, maybe we could mark down our top two to five things we seem to know about angels as we look at them across Scripture and their activities. And what we do know about angel activity or, or the beings, uh, angelic beings, is that we know for sure, and the easiest place for us to go there without, again, rehearsing too much information would be to go to Hebrews 1 in your New Testament, and you'll find them to be described as ministering spirits. Right? So, so, so this is what they are. We know that. They minister unto God. They minister unto Christ. And we see that in Matthew when, when, when Christ goes through his temptations right at the conclusion of the final get away from me, Satan be gone. Angels come, Matthew describes, and begin ministering to him. Um, and the, so, so we realize a function of angels in the program and design of God at creation is for them to be ministering spirits. So the idea is then put forward that what we see then in the account of Genesis is we see Satan, that is prior to him be calling, being called Satan or the great dragon or the serpent. What we see here is a ministering spirit who falls from his position of ministerial authority. Why? Why is he falling? Why the episode of Genesis 3? Why this angelic ministering spirit, here to minister proactively to Adam and Eve, to test and try their faith, to push them through probation unto confirmation in the righteousness of God? Why? Due to his pride and envy over them. Again, what causes this ministering spirit to have this beautiful position and role in the program of God. And we could go to Jude 6, this place of authority, this, this, this role and function in the program of God, this wonderful place where they minister to God directly. And you can go to the book of Revelation and see these exultant pictures of, of the age that is to come. And what's even occurring in this age, in that dimension right now, as a minister in the throne room of God. And he would he would forego that role, that ministerial element, um, because of his pride and his envy of men. Seeing there the beautiful marriage of man and woman, Adam and Eve, unashamed. A small little comment I gave you to kind of put like uh, maybe a little context to it in your mind. Like, how could it be, though? What, what, what would stir to make him, this ministry spirit, in the, in the program of God, envious of these two standing right before him to whom he was to minister? Well, I gave you this small little comment. It's kind of like a, a slight example, but a little bit tongue-in-cheek, perhaps. But maybe it gives some perspective to it. And it was from this author saying this, quote, Imagine how you'd feel if you were told that platypuses would inherit the earth and rule over you. So to give you just this idea where you're like, that's weird to think of platypuses ruling over me. Um, 
But, but what about this, this beautiful, powerful, angelic being? Seeing in front of him man and woman. The, 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 the beings created in the very image of God. Being, and then hearing the blessed language of chapter 1. Subdue and rule over the entire earth. And the stewardship that they have. And the stewardship that he possessed. And then this sense of envy and pride as he looks upon man and woman in the program of God. A powerful summary, and this is, again, just summarizing view number one, is what I offered in John Milton's work, and many of you commented on that from maybe having to take it in some lit course at some point in time or having read Paradise Lost. It's a striking and very perceptive uh, comment made by Milton uh, when he writes this, and, and this is where we kind of move to what Satan experienced or the ministering spirit angelic host experienced at his fall. Satan, he says, Milton, Satan, fraught through pride. This is, this is so keenly perceptive. Thought himself impaired. He, he lost a sense of clarity and reality. Do you see that in our own lives, that you think yourself impaired? You lose perspective on life? How do you lose perspective in your role in providence, what God has given you, the privileges that he's extended to you, the bounty, the blessings? Um, heading into like the holiday season, all the, just the richness of family, tradition, time spent, blessing others, experiencing the hand of blessing from other people to you as an object of their love and affection, all these rich blessings. And then we, we can nonetheless, in the face of them, think ourselves impaired, where we can't even perceive the blessings any longer that God has so richly bestowed upon us. Why? Because we are so self-fixated. Negative thoughts come. Blessings are often hidden to us, almost being made blind by our own self-fixation. Well, I don't have this. I didn't get that. They didn't say that to me. And there goes this distortion or this impairment of reality because of self-fixation. This is the conclusion to kind of view number one, that what we possess in Genesis 3 is this angelic ministering spirit falling here in Genesis 3 as he is envious and proud against mankind. The second then view, and I want to uh, kind of describe just briefly this morning, and like I said, draw a few concluding thoughts about the fall uh, of Satan. The second of two primary, so, so that's primary, uh, or that's the first of two primary positions, that he fell here in the garden, and this is, you, you need not look elsewhere for where it may have occurred. You have it right here in Genesis 3, view number one. View number two is this. Scripture describes only the type of sin that Satan commits, but it is silent in reference to the time wherein it is committed. So you see the, the distinctions, right? So, so view number two says, yes, I agree that, that, that there, we, we know from the Bible's data when the serpent appears here, we know something of him. We know something of his deeds. We know something of the type of sin involved with him. Um, but it just is utterly silent as to when it occurred. We just don't know. 
um, the sin that is committed or the type of sin that Satan commits, and you could guess, right? I think it's, it's taught to us at a very early age, and we don't have to do a lot of digging into the Bible to kind of describe it or figure it out. The sin that is committed is shared by both of you. It's pride. Pride is the sin that brought about Satan's fall. Now, again, as to when he exercised this pride, and then also considering against who was he so proud, this view contests that the Bible just is silent. We don't know what caused him to be proud. We, we, we don't know who the object of his pride and scorn was. Um, and we don't know when it occurred. But what we do know, if we read our Bibles carefully, we see one thing consistently emerge in the view of who he is as a being and what brought about his fall and what will bring about his demise. And that is pride, self-fixation. I want to um, not have to spend too much time moving around in our Bibles, but I do want to read two passages that give kind of the biblical evidence for pride, for, for most certain that it is pride that the sin uh, which brought about Satan's demise uh, from the biblical record. So, in other words, how do we know for sure that it is pride that caused the fall of Satan and then he attacking Adam and Eve in the garden and brought about so much disaster? How do we know for sure it's pride? Would you turn to Matthew 4? Uh, just for, I have three biblical evidences or three biblical pieces that I would like us to look at together and that would strengthen your thought and, and uh, to understand, indeed, the biblical witness does present to us that Satan is a, a, a sinister spirit filled uh, with pride. Matthew 4, um, Matthew 4. Matthew 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, and we'll read 8 through 11. So Matthew 4, um, that we know that pride is at the center uh, of Satan as a being. Beginning in verse 8, and I referenced this just a little bit earlier, here's the 40 days of our Lord's temptation in the covenant wherein he secured our righteousness in the covenant of grace. But verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, uh, quite mysterious, all of these elements of temptation that is occurring here between our Lord and this, um, and this demon host, this sa- Satan. Verse 9, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So, again, a small picture here of how do we know that we can summarize so effectively that the sin that brought about Satan's demise, wherein he appears in Genesis 3, is helping us know where he came from here in this text is this. Number one, Satan wants to be worshipped. That was the temptation. This is what he's after. He is so consumed with self as the apex 
the object of adoration and exaltation. He perceives himself to be that. And so he requests and wants worship. Number two, what is the second biblical evidence that we have in the the text of Scripture that helps us understand that pride is what brought about the fall of Satan? That is, number two, Satan is explicitly condemned for pride. So out of all the things that the dastardly deeds and all the efforts that he's up to, what do we know that he is explicitly condemned for? Very explicitly, this is a statement of condemnation upon you, and it is for pride. Turn to 1 Timothy. If you're in Matthew, move forward to the pastoral epistles there in 1 Timothy. If you're in 1 Timothy, look at 1 Timothy 3. I want to show you verse 6. And this is an important in a couple of different ways. This text here is important to our understanding of the fall in a couple of ways. And it might help us uh, with the uh, first view as well, understand a little bit better. So if you're in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, now maybe we're familiar with the, the pastoral epistles, right? So we have uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And as we look at them and we read through them, um, it's often where you'll hear a sermon out of them or for them. If somebody's not preaching through them, kind of at an ordination service. Somebody will exhort a minister uh, before the laying out of hands and his, his achieving his ordination. Something will be preached to exhort and charge him from a pastoral epistle. Here to, from Paul to young Timothy to challenge and exhort him in the way of pastoral duties. Um, And here, as you see the topical heading in your Bible in chapter 3, it deals with the qualifications of overseers, or what we've said so far about even angels, right? We just describe them as ministering spirits. So it's an interesting context, right? We're, We're just about to learn more about Satan and his fall in the context of what? Ministry or ministers, Do you see how that kind of helps strengthen or maybe bring some credibility to the idea of Satan as ministering spirit? In other words, his fall had a context. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul is warning fellow ministers, that is, aspiring ministers, men who would aspire to the office and the program of God to serve and administrate to the church of Jesus Christ. Those who would build and edify and challenge and test and minister to and nourish. Very similar to perhaps the angelic realm. Ministers in the program of God. And it's fraught with peril. So he says here in the qualifications to ministers, verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. This is regarding elders, teaching elders, ruling elders. He must not be a a, a recent convert. Why not? Because it's, it's very complex what takes place in the experience of ministry. And so there's this challenge to him because he may become puffed up with conceit. This initial experience of ministerial authority. And you remember what we hear about uh, the angels from Jude. They left this position of authority. They had an official role in the program of God to minister to those who will inherit eternal life. And I'm warning earthly ministers. I'm warning you. That is, Timothy, when you examine a man or men who will join with you in ruling and presiding over a church, I'm warning you to warn them. Ministry has peril. 
Ministry has challenges. And, and the men who then go into it by the Spirit's grace in their life ought be these men. Well, is it a big deal? It's a huge deal. Why? Because they might become conceited, self-fixated. Well, what happens in the place, or perhaps what can potentially happen to a minister who's self-fixated, who thinks himself impaired? Well, described here, we find out he will fall. Verse 6. Now, you notice this little phrase next as it describes ministerial role, ministerial intent, and the dangers therein. How shall he fall? Into the condemnation of the devil. You see, now, now, that, now there's some, some connection there, right? Warn the ministers of fellow ministerial peril. Verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here in this text, as we try to describe, what what, what do we know of Satan as a being? What is his intent? What is at the center of his being? What then probably most likely brought about his his fall in the first place? I just gave you the answer. The answer is pride. So number two, Satan is explicitly condemned very explicitly and purposely condemned for pride. Therein so are fellow earthly ministers warned of abandoning that ministerial role because he thinks himself impaired. Number three, the third kind of biblical evidence of how do we know the type or species of sin that brought about Satan's demise, and that is back in our text. If you would just then go back to Genesis 3, we won't be searching the texts any longer. We'll just go back to Genesis 3 now. And the answer, or the evidence, number three, uh, just to be clear, number one, Satan wants to be worshipped. That's evidenced. He says so himself. That's his own confession in Matthew 4. Number two, Satan is explicitly condemned for none other than pride, conceit. That's brought about his condemnation. And number three, then the biblical evidence for what we know of Satan is at the center of his being is number three, pride is what he uses here to tempt Adam and Eve. It's in his bag of tricks. Notice how he does so, and, and we'll just kind of jump through the conversation, and then we'll hit this part where he uses, the, he weaponizes pride so effectively to us as human beings. Just look at the whole, the, his strategical moves. Uh, beginning in one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Is that, is that precisely, as I challenge, as I test, is that precisely what he said? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But what he said was, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. But but see, if you just look right over in your text, in verse 17 of chapter 2, 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. Let me, in, let me let you into a little secret. This is what God actually knows. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You see her hearing this? It's staggering. You can imagine. Your eyes will be opened. Do you know what that means for you? You, you, Eve, you will be like God. You will, in your own knowledge base, discern good and evil. You see, herein in this statement, we see he's a man of pride, self-fixation, and he uses that which is so caught up in his being to weaponize effect, to lie and to murder. That's why our Lord said in Ma- earlier in the Gospels in John where he said that you are of your father, the devil, as he speaks to those who distort the word of God. He says he was a liar. He was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. He is the father of lies. Right? That apex piece of lying and distorting the truth because he thought himself impaired. In pride and in envy, he sought to destroy men and women in the program of God. One little note should be made, and we all know this to be true in our lives. Pride wasn't what occurred in the garden. It occurs in our hearts, in our minds, in even our most pious moments. He weaponizes self-fixation in our lives, where we indeed think ourselves impaired. Reality becomes distorted. Blessings seem to be not acknowledged. And grievance and bitterness slowly rise. One author concludes this thought about, about this picture here and with Satan and his pride. He says this, quote, the angel... So, so we're using his, just the idea of his role in the program of God prior to his name of Satan. He says, quote this, The angel becoming somewhat remiss in the contemplation of God. Do you, do you see? That, that, that's where pride creeps in. Do you see? So what was his first kind of left-footed move? Where did he leave that proper authority and that proper role and that proper... Uh, function for where his reality was and what brings clarity and peace and joy to that world wherein he lives. He made a left-footed move. How so? By becoming somewhat remiss in the contemplation of God. He began to turn the sharpness of his intellect, that which he was endowed, he took the sharpness of his intellect from God to himself. And to admire himself in the place of God. 
to be carried on from the admiration and overweening love of self unto pride. And it was this pride that led to his rebellion against the program of God. So, in conclusion, then, to view number two. So, we, we, we've kind of uh, uh, mapped view number one. We mapped view number two, and then we'll move toward our time of concluding the thought and fall of angels and Satan most particularly. I would say this. What can we say for sure uh, during, about the concept of fallen angels and principally the fall of Satan? We must say at least this. We must. We, we have to say this. This is the biblical evidence of what we must say. And that is, number one, angels were created upright. So when we think of the man, the being, the angelic being, Satan, we say of him at the point of creation, he, along with all angels, were created upright. Number two, what we must say is they are mutable. That is... They have agency and will. Due to that agency, they can sin. They can, at that point, turn their thoughts from God, of which is their role, is their function, to worship and adore. And they can turn that powerful intellect away from adoring and back upon themselves. And fall and think themselves impaired. They're mutable. This could occur. So I then conclude this way. In one sense, I think we would uh, together agree, if we consider this carefully, we would agree that while much remains mysterious, so, so we haven't untied the Gordian knot in here regarding the origin of Satan and all of the falling hosts of angels and then the, how they became demons and what exactly is taking place. So while we admit, yes, indeed, much remains mysterious, on the other hand, it's not that hard that into, to think that into angelic intellect such pride could creep if they are created upright and yet mutable. They could sin because we know they did sin. And rebelled against God. So while mysterious, not altogether removed. Finally then, I want to give a few concluding thoughts. I have four concluding thoughts. And I won't expound upon each. I just want to give you kind of where I'm coming from. As I think of view number one and view number two. Where it shakes out for me. And that is first... To the text as a whole, like overall, how am I viewing what's occurring in Genesis 3? I, that is Adam, is, include, is inclined to view Genesis 3 as revealing both the fall of man as well as the fall of Satan. That, that, that's, where I, that's where it comes to, to make sense for me. That's how I would preach and, and look at this text. This is how I would read it. And, and the reason for that, somewhat, just a little bit, there's many, and hopefully I gave you a few to wrestle with, but simply put, I would say this, this is the data we have, Genesis 3, that this is what we do have, and, 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 and what we know from the biblical text is what he should be doing, and what we see here in the text is what we find him doing, and those two things are radically different. He ought to be doing this. We can anticipate it, and he's not. We have a problem here. So for me, this is where we have data to say perhaps this indeed is the fall of Satan. Secondly, 
to the type of sin involved. What type of sin? I think we've tackled that, and I think we're, we're satisfied with the biblical testimony that it's pride that is involved in Satan's fall. So whether you see pride in the object against Christ, the Son of God, or you see pride as the object of man at creation, or you see pride somewhere mysteriously welling up within him with some other object as its terminal point, it's neither here nor there. I think we agree that the biblical evidence is clear from what we know of him. We know him to be self-fixated, indeed proud. Thirdly, the issue of timing. When did the fall, so if we say that, if I'm saying that the fall is happening here in Genesis 3, that this is what we have in this data is is when Satan, the angelic being, prior to being Satan, the dragon, and and the the devil. If this is is what we have in this picture, when exactly did it occur? And, And this is what I would say. I think the most natural way to read the text of Genesis 3 is to view Satan as having already fallen prior to his introduction in verse 1. So, in other words, I think it occurs somewhere in the area that has a big um, blank double-space mark uh, on the page between verse 25 of chapter 2 and verse 1 of chapter 1. In that double-spaced gap is somewhere down in there the mysterious fall. I, I, I'm, that's what I think is most natural to the text. Because when, when you get in there, I think it's a little challenging to read crafty in verse 1 as anything but giving you an, a, a good kind of feel that this guy's, in other words, malicious. Not good. It gets your spidey senses tingling, as it were, as a reader. You're like, oh, this isn't good. I just was told this guy is craftier than anything else. Uh-oh, what am I supposed to expect? Really good things? I think most naturally you're thinking, no, I don't think there's going to be any good things that come of this. And I think that's the most natural way that was intended for us to read. But I do think herein is the, the, the fall of Satan contained in Genesis 3. The final evidence for that that kind of really seals the deal for me. And that is if you look over at verse 14, this is how we're going to end. This is my final thing this morning. The thing that really seals the deal for me in viewing it this way is what we read in verse 14. Notice very carefully and think about it in light of what we do know. And that's the evidence of chapter 3, that herein he is being crafty toward the woman and the man and lying because he has envy of them. He has envy against them. Verse 14 says, the Lord God said to the serpent. I'm sorry, jump up to verse 13, in fact. In fact, go back to verse 1. No, just kidding. Verse, verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Notice very carefully, Because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock. Now, at that point, we'd say, well, maybe he's, cur- he's cursing the, the lizard that had legs, and then it's going to begin a snake and crawl about. And that's the curse. It's on the actual animal species. It's on, that, that's what it's saying. It, yes and no, right? Sure. But what we do know, indeed, as he speaks perhaps to this species, what we do know also is it goes far beyond the reason, like, you're scared every time you see a snake in the garage. It goes far beyond that. 
right? Because you did this, this deceitful act, this right here, because you fell in pride and self-fixation and thought yourself impaired and sought to murder, lie, and destroy, mankind created in my image. Because you did this, not that or that or that or that, this. Notice what he says, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And I'll tell you how it ends. He shall bruise and crush, destroy, that is the idea, your head. And you shall bruise his heel because you have done this. Therein, I think, is recorded the fall of Satan that remains somewhat mysterious but somewhat evident. Let us pray.